Hello! I hope you enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you! Human beings have two rather divergent capabilities that give us amazing survival advantages. On the one hand, we have the capability to develop plans and goals to establish them, to maintain them, to edit them, and to communicate them very concisely using language. And so language is a wonderful tool that pushes us as a species to accumulate, to build, to uh, create, to think in terms of the future. And so that's one significant survival advantage that we can uh, maintain a sense of a history and a sense of progress using the language skills that we have and we can coordinate activities so elegantly with that. And then on the other side, largely due to right brain capabilities, we also as a species bond as well as any other species can bond. We can establish relationships, alliances, communities, collectives, gatherings, tribes. You can tell by how many different words we have for it, how many different ways we can connect and sustain those connections. And those connections are largely solidified not by language or by ideas, but by the expression and the feeling of emotions. Right hemispheric messaging is primarily somatic and emotional, and our emotions are what guide us to get our needs met in relational lives. Now, there's two kinds of connections that humans have. One could be lumped under the vague heading of tribal connections. Tribal connections are essentially a gathering. So you might come here tonight at Dharma Punks hoping to have a class and sit amongst other people practicing and interested in Buddhism. And in a gathering, you really aren't fixated on who will be there. You're just going for the experience of being amidst or amongst the collective of people. So the actual identities are not that important. If you go to an AA meeting, you might hope to see some sober friends or Al-Anon meetings, some friends in Al-Anon, but if they're not there, you'll still get your needs met. There will be a meeting, you'll be around people addressing the same issues. So tribal connections are not specific to individuals. 
there are certain kind of tribal emotions that we have that guide us to sustain collective participation and to act appropriately and beneficially towards the communities to which we belong in our lives. Such tribal emotions are familiar. Pride is the feeling of having done something to the benefit of the greater good to uh, sustaining a societal meaning or a sense of purpose for a community. Shame is when we've acted selfishly or have not considered the greater good. So someone might feel a, sh a sense of shame if they think unthinkingly uh, pollute. Hopefully they would. And someone might feel pride if they see that and they clean up someone else's mess. They're not doing it for a specific relationship or a specific person. They're doing it for the better of a group or a ecosystem or an environment of people and beings. So we have tribal emotions, but then we also have very specific relationships known in psychology as dyads. They're very specific to who the other person is. You have best friend or a couple of best friends. You have people that you might be intimately involved with. You might have a sibling, a brother, a sister, someone who's been a mentor. And these people have specific identities. So they are not the same as tribal relationships. You actually want to see a specific person. And if that person is not available, that attachment figure, as it's called, is not available, you might feel a sense of grief or sadness. That's a relational emotion. You also might feel love when you connect with a new attachment figure. Love is an emotion that pushes us to express satisfaction, joy, to, be, uh, to express our emotions in a variety of different ways. It's known as a broad emotion. Anger is an emotion that in relationships tells us to establish boundaries. When we feel anger, on the other hand, towards a community, it, it pushes us to confront injustice in the world. Guilt is largely, not invariably, but largely an interpersonal relational emotion. Now, of course, it can be a community emotion. One could feel white guilt. I certainly hope that some of the Germans after World War II might have felt a little bit of national guilt. Uh, but primarily, as tonight's conversation will go, guilt is the feeling of having done something that has wounded an important person, an attachment figure to us. Guilt, when it's reasonable, when it's not dysregulated, when it's useful, pushes us to do two things. One is to acknowledge our regrets or remorse. And two is to make some kind of sustained behavioral change known as an amends. Guilt 
as we will see, in no way asks us ever to make any global statement about ourselves as a human being or our identity. And part of the way that guilt goes so horribly wrong, not all the ways, there's many ways it can go terribly wrong, but one of the ways we'll see is when we use guilt as a way to make global statements about ourselves. The Buddha was very firm in, in maintaining that guilt should only be felt for one's actions, never for oneself. So if we make a mistake, we regret the action. We don't regret in any way ourself or in any way label ourselves as unskillful or harmful or anything of the sort. Guilt is so important for the survival of our species that we have dedicated, ingrained, cross-cultural, bilateral neural circuits. In other words, you have brain circuits, no matter which country you're born in, it's the same circuit that essentially establishes a sense of guilt and shame. Guilt is largely emotional. It's largely activated by the right brain, areas called the amygdala, the insula, the orbital frontal, and the striatum. There's only a smaller secondary role that's played by thought, cognition, and that's the dorsal medial, but it's far and away an emotion, not a story, not an idea. So when guilt works, we empathize with those we wounded and we feel inspired to repair something that we've done. We might have missed uh, a, a gathering or an event that someone has asked us to attend. We might have let unkind words slip. We might have uh, in some way acted thoughtlessly that has harmed a relationship. We might have uh, presented ourselves in an inauthentic way. So the only thing that guilt is wired to do is to make us, in areas like the anterior cingulate cortex, it makes us feel emotional pain, which encourages us to do something to right and reestablish or repair the relationship. Guilt is largely activated by creating physical discomfort via the insula and also emotional or attentional discomfort, feeling antsy, feeling jumpy, feeling uncomfortable in one's skin, feeling sad. It creates emotional pain and physiological or somatic tightness in the abdomen, a hollowness in the chest, a lump in the throat, a sort of heaviness. So the Buddha did believe that there were healthy uses, uses for guilt, but it was very specific. In one sutta he said there are two lucid states that essentially protect us and other people, and that was guilt based on morality and based on the dread of acting immorally in the future. So there's guilt for actions we've done, 
which is Hiri and Otapa, no, sorry, Samwega, and then guilt for having selfish plans that might harm others or don't consider the welfare of others, and that's Hiri and Otapa. The Buddha was very clear that much of guilt is felt. Samwega, the feeling of guilt, is the Buddha told his son Rahula is a sense of discomfort, feeling ill at ease. It's a tightness very often felt in the stomach. So when it works, again, guilt is a way to let us know. It's like kind of a red alert that's meant to let us know that we need to acknowledge a wrongdoing and that we need to, uh, in some way, repair Unfortunately, and here's where we get to the bad part, guilt can be co-opted by religions, by educational systems, and by family systems as a means, subtle or otherwise, of control. Guilt can be manipulated by parents, by teachers, by religious figures as a way to enforce membership, compliance, essentially putting aside one's needs to sacrifice for a family or a educational group or a religious system. When in childhood, during encounters with parents or teachers, or Sunday school teachers, or what have you, the, we are overly criticized, judged, shamed. When we are overly punished in childhood, what happens is our trigger for guilt is set too low, and we feel it at times when we need not, when we have not in any way acted unkindly. Also, those who have been, there's been lots of studies on guilt, a Norwegian study on what's called the Dobby effect has shown how easy it is to manipulate people into feeling guilt and how when people are overly punished and shamed, they actually feel more guilt than less. You would think growing up in a family where one's parents or siblings or one's teachers were over the top in their guilting and shaming and judgment, one might finally say, well, fuck this. I don't give a shit. But no, actually, people, the more wounded they are, the more they tend to interject and internalize guilt as a means of self-control. I feel I have not just as a Buddhist and a, with a, psych, a psychology background, my education and uh, was in psychology, my grad work, and, but I'm also half Jewish and half Catholic, so I feel ideally situated for this talk. My grandmother used to sneak into my room when my Jewish mother was away, and she would explain to me at the age of six that I was unclean 
<laughs> and I always thought, well, I don't think I'm unclean. <laughs> and that if I wanted to go to heaven with my father, note, not my mother, if I wanted to go to heaven with my father, I had to repent and pray to God. Oddly enough, I was, I guess, lucky because the whole thing sounded so patently absurd to me that I was just incapable of, of taking it seriously, even at six. Maybe because I was trained by my, you know, deeply atheist mother, you know, who had a very sort of non-religious and uh, very, very concrete view of the world. I, the soil had already been, plant, been put in place and anything like re a religious system like that just could not flourish in my brain. Still, I, I would always go just for the fun of it and repeat exactly what my grandmother said to my mom just to like, just to see my mom's outrage. I don't know why I'm telling you any of this, but uh, <laughs> anyway. So by the time we reach adult life, guilt in relationship with one's family is very often misplaced. It's a, essentially an interjected means of self-control that has been manipulated in many, many, many cases where people feel this sense of simply establishing boundaries for themselves, simply taking care of themselves, simply ex uh, prioritizing their own well-being and their own creative needs can activate in themselves, even if they don't interact with family members, it can activate this interjected superego, what Freud called feelings of I'm being selfish. Even though the actions are simply organized around self-care. When we feel excessive guilt, and when the guilt is also dysregulated because we were overly shamed, judged, punished at some point in our lives, whether in education or workplace or any other arena, we tend to use maladaptive ways to repress our feelings of guilt. One, there's two kinds of maladaptives. There's the ones that do not lead immediately to any real negative outcomes, but they are just simply repressive. Examples of that would be denial, simply denying that one has acted in any way, or one is the actions that activate guilt, one denies. Other blame, that's when we blame people we believe we wounded and say that they are essentially the cause of the actions that we feel guilty about. Justification is when we rationalize and come up with reasons why we acted selfishly or why we did the things we did. Now, the more we feel unreasonable guilt, and we rely on these tendencies to repress it, the more when we have very appropriate guilt, when we have acted harmfully, we will repress that too. So once we start down this path of repressing guilt, 
we not only will repress the, t the feelings of shame and remorse that are inappropriate, but we will also repress feelings of sh discomfort and remorse that we should feel to help us maintain a relationship. So it, in many ways, even this form of repression can be harmful. But there are really damaging maladaptive strategies. Self-loathing is very common for those who feel guilt. Rather than feeling the physiological and emotional guilt, people will simply translate it into a story of what a shithead I am or how bad I am. And essentially, even though you would think that would be just as painful as the feelings, people tend to prefer thinking than they tend to want to experience difficult feelings. Another repressive strategy is avoidance coping. Avoiding people or places or things that we associate with guilt. People who activate guilt. So if you feel accurately or otherwise that you've harmed someone, avoidance coping is sidestepping bypassing, taking a different route, avoiding an entirely different neighborhood simply to not encounter someone who activates guilt. Very common in family systems when we feel that we haven't, perhaps inappropriately, we feel that we haven't shown up enough for a family member, then very often when guilt starts to be experienced, people will start avoidance coping. So they will turn an inappropriate experience of guilt into a practice where they start withdrawing from that person and then it actually turns into a, a situation where guilt would be appropriate. Addictions are very, very common. Behavioral addictions, some people when they feel guilt will shop or eat. Some will take drugs, will drink, I did that for many, many years. It's been 23 years now since I have, but I still understand that compulsion. Unfortunately, one of the most common ways that people repress feelings of guilt is through self-punishment. In the When Guilt Evokes Self-Punishment, a study in the in Netherlands, people, they had this test where they asked people questions that were set up to elicit feelings of shame and guilt. Questions like, how recently did you call your mother? That's like that, I suppose. I didn't actually see the questions, but I assume it's... And they asked another group of people questions that weren't meant to elicit guilt. And then at the end of the test, they gave people choices where they would like a present or whether they won't, don't want a present. And get this, the third possibility is, would you like a small electric shock? <laughs> <laughs> the most insane, only in the Netherlands would they do this. <laughs> but, so, the people who were made to feel guilty a large percentage of them said, I'll take the electric shock. <laughs> Holy shit! 
And the rest said, no, I don't deserve a, uh, an award for taking this. Whereas the people who were asked non-guilt-inducing questions said, I'll take the present, give it to me, you know, whatever it was. I, I assume something meager. So to review, the more we early on experience maladaptive systems, relationships, the more likely it is we will feel inappropriate guilt for actions that are in no way harmful. The more we feel inappropriate guilt, the more likely we will repress guilt using maladaptive strategies such as denial, justification, blaming the people we've wounded, or really maladaptive, like self-loathing, avoidance coping, uh, self-punishment, and addiction. So what do we do about this? Here are three solutions, two of which we will practice in the meditation. The first is, as the Buddha in the Rahula Sutta said to his son, when you feel you might have done something inappropriate, don't decide for yourself. Find what he called Kalyanamita, which is someone, a wise friend, who is willing to say, I wouldn't feel guilty about that, or would say, okay, but you, sh don't, you shouldn't beat yourself up. Why not simply acknowledge it and offer to make some form of amends? But don't sit around judging and beating yourself up. That, makes, that doesn't repair the relationship at all. The sutta is called the Rahula Sutta, and he said, essentially, whenever you feel to a son who is seven, I wish somebody said this to me, he said, don't sit around beating yourself up, just find someone appropriate. Now, this is in all 12-step and in refuge recovery and in so many other spiritual traditions a... Uh, a, an established practice. In 12-step, people do a fourth and a fifth step where they acknowledge experiences in their past, focusing often on times during which they were actively using, and a sponsor will listen and say, okay, fuck that, <laughs> fuck that, I did that too, don't worry about that. I mean, I did, like, with my sponsor, like, a six-hour one. I, I don't know how the guy stayed conscious. He must have been shooting speed <laughs> in the background. But, you know, it was, like, for 20 years of, you know... And, like, at the end, I had, like, six things, he said, that I could call up people and apologize for. And suddenly all that storytelling that was creating such a sense of pain and shame and discomfort began to be lifted. The key to relieving the cognition of guilt is to disclose it to someone who is skillful, who is absolutely not themselves prone to abnormal guilt, but to someone who has, you believe, has a right-sized sense. And their job is to normalize so that you don't feel that your actions are the worst thing. Because we have a tendency to take 
guilt very personally and believe somehow that something we've done is way, way worse than it actually is. And their job is also to say, to take the personal component out and say, don't make this into a story about yourself. Just here's how you can write an email, call a friend, get together over coffee and make amends for it. So that's the cognitive role. We won't be doing that tonight, but never try to figure out on your own what to feel guilty about. That is why we are a communal species. Number two, when it comes to the somatic experience of guilt, the difficult feelings, in Buddhism we practice what's called mindfulness, and mindfulness breaks down any experience into its very basic components so that no experience needs to be overwhelming. The Buddha broke down all experience into four parts. The breath, how things feel somatically as physiological emotions in the front of the body, what's called feelings. Three is the level of attention or awareness, the, um, the, the qualities of emotions that are mental, how you focus your attention, whether your awareness feels small or big. And finally, he says, then we can look at thoughts, but we won't do that in this practice. We're just going to work with the first three. We're going to break down something that we feel guilty about into the three components. Now, interestingly enough, when I... Uh, was in teacher, Buddhist teacher training, I was friends with a guy, another Buddhist teacher, who worked with soldiers from Afghanistan who had experienced traumatic, traumatic injuries and had seen just horrible events. And he found that when he broke down the experiences that were flashbulb memories that were mobilizing them and creating panic attacks and making them duck and cover in the middle of the city. If he broke, if he had them narrate the story while just simply focusing on the breath and then narrate the story while simply feeling the gut sensations and then narrate the story and talk about the quality of attention they were experiencing that they could actually be with and begin to heal the trauma because they were no longer fighting it, repressing it, nor were they being swamped or overwhelmed by it. So if we break down experiences into components, it makes it easier to alleviate and to regulate guilt, to make it right-sized. Finally, the last quality to acknowledge is that there are emotional beliefs, what the Buddha called allures, asadas, that are, no, sorry, that's not the word, asava, uh, asadas, yeah. Um, and every action, every emotional state in our life has an underlying allure. For example, worry. We don't like it when we worry. It's hard to understand why we worry. But actually, there's a reason for it. When we worry, we feel prepared. We feel less unguarded, less vulnerable. We feel, if we can think about everything that goes wrong or could go wrong, 
we feel that somehow we won't be caught unaware. So guilt has an underlying allure. And then the Buddha says you have to find the escape. And the escape from worry is reflecting on all the times in life we were completely caught off guard and still survived. So we have to show that inner child, that emotional belief that the only way we'll ever be safe is by worrying. We have to show it, not tell it, but show it all the times that worry was absolutely non-essential to our survival and how we are actually skilled to survive entirely impromptu without any needing to prepare. So the allure of guilt is that many of us feel that there's something dark and unlovable about us, something very lazy, something very harmful, something very selfish, or something very needy, or something that's very wrong about us. We don't know what it is. It's just this feeling that we have this dark passenger in us. And that is what Jung called the shadow self. It's this place where we've dumped all the feelings associated with emotional woundings in our life. And it creates the sense that there's something really wrong with me. So the allure of guilt is that we believe it's guilt that keeps that ugly part of us down and hidden and allows us to sustain relationships. It, some people believe that it's only because they feel guilt that they wouldn't be lazy all the time, that they wouldn't lie around in bed, that they wouldn't essentially let go of all their friendships, that they wouldn't, that it's my guilt that's keeping me in my family or keeping me doing good things for the world. It's that it's a maladaptive coping strategy that we developed in childhood. Guilt is a way to keep ourselves in line, but by the time we get to adult life, we fully believe that it's the only thing keeping us socializable and lovable. And the escape is to actually show ourselves that without guilt, we have many times acted in very beneficial, kind, compassionate ways. That it's not, in fact, guilt that is what's maintaining our relationships. It's because all of us have compassion to some degree and have some kindness that we are capable of expressing and that we do not need to rely on guilt as the, the engine for our interpersonal lives. So before my voice gives out, I'm going to lead us on a meditation where we actually get to practice all this. So, find a really comfortable seated position And when you're ready, close your eyes.
and see if you can fully arrive, land in this moment. See if you can land in such a way that you... It's a feeling of having finally arrived at a destination, a place you've wanted to... experience. Perhaps you've been traveling for a full day to get to a remote destination somewhere exotic and beautiful and you finally are off the plane and out of the car, you've arrived at the hut or the hotel where you'll be staying or the friend's place, and you've put your bags down, and you have nowhere to go, you have nothing to do, you have no one to worry about nothing to achieve. So let this moment be such a moment. You can have that experience of arriving anytime you simply let go of that feeling of momentum, that story of what we need to do in the future. See if you can almost feel your body landing in your seat. Nowhere to go. Nothing to do. No one to take care of or please. a half hour's vacation from all of life and its busyness, a break from its calendars and its to-do lists, letting go of all of the momentum of life, So for the first part of the meditation, we're simply going to practice what's called concentration or samatha. All it simply means is keep something in your awareness. You don't have to push anything out of your awareness. So you could for the first part of the meditation, just listen to the sound of the traffic. Don't add any stories. Don't add any visual. Don't imagine which kinds of vehicles are honking. Just hear the sounds and let them go always aware of what's happening in each successive moment. Like your mind is a room with nothing but screens 
where wind and air and sound can pass through, but nothing gets stuck or is held onto. Like a sky where clouds can drift through without limit. Try to let this awareness be wider than just your head. Everything you're aware of is in your mind, so you don't need to limit the sense of your mind as being the same size as your head. Just allow it to be as large and spacious as all the sounds. (coughs) On the other hand, if you don't like working with sounds, you can use an embodied sensation such as the feeling of breathing. Once again, don't visualize yourself breathing. Just feel the sensations of the inhalation and the exhalation. It's helpful to make several parts of the body held in awareness, like the stomach and the chest, feeling the expansion first of the belly and then the chest and then the deflation of the chest and then the belly. If you work with the breath, try to focus all of your effort on the pause after the out-breath before the next in-breath. That's the time where we're most vulnerable to slip away, to drift off into thought. So during the pause after an outbreath, you can count the duration. So after you breathe out, you could count one, two, three, until you start breathing in again. Or simply focus all of your effort on staying embodied and aware during that pause. Another approach is to count one on the in, two on the out, and three in the pause between the out-breath and the in, and then four on the in, five on the out, six on the pause, and so forth. So I'm going to leave you in silence for a while. If your awareness drifts away into a realm of virtual reality, thoughts, memories, plans, self-conscious inner chatter. That's all okay. No judgment. You're not doing anything wrong. You gain just as much in the way you relate to that experience as by simply having a settled, relaxed mind. So when you find that you're thinking or nodding off, just simply become aware, feel good that you're developing mindfulness, and very gently, compassionately, bring your awareness back to your breath or to the sounds. Absolutely no criticism, 
no impatience, no frustration. This is your vacation. There's no room for that.
So at this point, I'd like you to search through your memory or just allow a memory to arise spontaneously, if you like, of some relationship or experience that you feel some sense of guilt. It could be someone, a friend or a family member who needs greater assistance, but in some way to prioritize our well-being, we may have required distance, Very often that's a source of some guilt. Try not to bring to mind a overwhelming, just some feeling of guilt, some relationship or event, interaction that you feel discomfort just hold the most activating image in your mind, the goal being not to punish yourself, but simply to activate some of the feelings of guilt that tightness in the abdomen, that headachey quality, that locking of the jaw, the fidgety, uncomfortable in one's own skin, the tense neck muscles, the feeling of sadness, heaviness. However you feel, guilt is fine. Just what we want to do is regulate the feeling by breaking it down into each of its components. So if you find something to work with, then while you feel or experience the guilt, see if you can become aware of how you're breathing and holding your body. What is the breath like? of this state of being. Does the breath become shallower? Quicker? Do you suddenly start feeling pains in the neck or a locking of the jaw? What are the ambient physical sensations of this experience, and can you hold awareness just of those physical sensations of the breath and tightness? Not repressing. And when it feels right, you can begin to soften around the experience. Relax the shoulders, the arms, 
soften the micro muscles around the eyes, create a safe container for the experience. Not repressing, not acting out, just being with. And then moving on to the feeling. Noting the area in the front of the body, the belly, the chest, the throat, and the muscles in the face, where we express the physical components of each emotion. How does guilt feel in the front of the body? Is the belly tight? the chest tight or hollow? Does everything go numb? Do the muscles in the face around the forehead contract? Again, creating a place where we can be with it, allow it, experience it without repression or acting out and then soften around it again breathe into any tightness begin to relax any tightness in the face just slightly dampening the experience so that we can be with it without needing to repress it. And now moving on to the attention associated with guilt. Does your mind feel jumpy or sleepy? Does your mind feel heavy or distracted? Does it feel very contracted and claustrophobic or does the mind feel heavy or dark? Just being with the quality of attention associated with guilt. And finally, bring to mind, hopefully it will arise spontaneously, any interaction or experience where simply out of generosity and kindness you acted beneficially towards someone else, not expecting any reward, not seeking any repayment. You just expressed kindness, attention, you gave care. You dedicated some effort to another's behalf. You helped someone who was sad 
You spend time with someone struggling. You help someone after a breakup or a divorce or a loss. Visualizing that person that you've dedicated some of your time and effort towards. And now bring to mind another person that you've acted virtually virtuously towards with compassion and kindness with attention with without expecting anything in return and just see their face and if you can visualize some of the appreciation they might have felt if they did feel it. And finally, bring to mind your own image, either of today or some point in the past. Just hold your image in your mind. looking at that image of yourself I care about you there's nothing wrong with you there is nothing dark or ugly or wrong about you You are doing absolutely the best you can. I care about you. So now we're reaching the time where we're going to transition from the meditation. Please take a moment to when you open your eyes, just look at the ground in front of you and see if you can take in just the quality of light and color without looking at any objects and see if you can bring this awareness of the breath and body, feelings and mind states into this more expanded state of awareness. 